Joining me on the phone line from Arizona, United States is Peter Smith, Senior Research Scientist at the University of Arizona and the Principal Investigator of NASA's Phoenix Mars Mission. Peter, thank you very much for taking our call and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Peter, before we begin, tell us about yourself, your education, your areas of expertise, uh, and how and when you became involved in space program. Well, I started uh, with a major in physics at uh, the University of California at Berkeley. I got a bachelor's, and then I worked in the uh, space program in Hawaii, as a matter of fact, for five years, going back to school eventually in optics, and I combined physics and optics and uh, planetary science into uh, a career of building space instrumentation. And so I've built the camera on uh, the Pathfinder mission to Mars, and uh, there were several other missions of, oh, yes, yeah, so the Oregon's probe to Titan, mm-hmm. and eventually uh, Phoenix. Yeah. Before we look at the Phoenix Mars uh, mission, uh, let us look back uh, at uh, some of previous space missions where you were involved. Uh, you, a few mentions you just now. Uh, tell me about the Pioneer Venus mission, which was launched in May 1978. Uh, I think it was the first space mission in which you were involved? That's correct. I started in 78 uh, doing calibration on one of the instruments that would land on the surface. And it was uh, a wonderful experience. We were able to calibrate the instrument, deliver it to, uh, I think it was Lockheed Martin, or Martin Marietta at the time. And uh, it was launched a few months later, and then it went to Venus uh, six months after that and landed. We had our data and published our results. And less than a year after starting, I was uh, a published author in Science Magazine. So I thought, what a great field. (laughs) And after this mission, why did interest in Venus uh, just go down for a very long time? I'm not sure. You know, the the surface temperatures are are very hot there. It's uh, hundreds of degrees. And the pressure is uh, like 3,000 feet below sea level, 90, 90 bars, 90 times our surface pressure. So it's it's not a place where you would ever expect to find life, for instance. Mm-hmm. And it's also very difficult to put a, a lander onto the planet because of the high temperatures and high pressure. So the, uh, the challenges are severe. And uh, frankly, we'd had four or five very successful missions to Venus and learned a lot about its atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of time to explore other objects. Okay. Uh, do you think that Russians were more interested in Venus uh, than the U.S. and the European? Absolutely. The, Ru- the Russians had very many missions. I don't remember the exact number, but it was probably close to 20. Mm-hmm. And that became, they sort of owned Venus, if you like. <laughs> they've done so much excellent research. And yeah. still today, the only lander that's ever taken a picture is a Russian lander. Mm-hmm. Uh, you designed one of the cameras for Mars Pathfinder mission. Uh, I still remember those historic and amazing images uh, that the Pathfinder sent from the surface of planet Mars. Uh, tell us about those images and those. Uh, uh, tell us about that camera and the moment when we received those images. Yeah, I sort of broke with the uh, the, the Viking tradition of having uh, cameras that were 
basically built for engineering purposes and not so much for the beauty of the images. And I built a camera that was more of a human perspective with two eyes and it stood about a human height above the surface. Mm -hmm. And this camera was able to give you pictures that made you actually feel like you're standing on the planet. Mm -hmm. And uh, the excitement was that we could watch a rover moving around in the scene, mm -hmm. going from rock to rock. And, and some days it would get hung up and we'd have to try and extract it off a pile of rocks and it was it was quite an adventure and and the place looked a lot like arizona actually uh, arizona without cactus <laughs> so there's a familiar feel to uh, to the pathfinder landing site after the pathfinder two missions to planet mars failed and then the phoenix uh, mars mission was launched how and when the idea of phoenix uh, mars uh, mission originated well NASA gave scientists the opportunity for the first time to propose an entire mission to Mars. Mm -hmm. And they'd done this before on other objects. Uh, there'd been asteroid missions and uh, missions to the moon uh, where scientists could lead a mission, but they'd never done it for Mars, which, of course, gets lots of public attention. And uh, so because they offered an opportunity, at least 20 different groups started uh, working really hard to design their missions. And... Um, Eventually, I, I took part in that competition, too, with a team that we felt our best chance was low-cost and good science. And so for low-cost, we wanted to use the 2001 Surveyor spacecraft that had been built and then mothballed mm -hmm. because of the uh, failures you mentioned. And so the spacecraft existed, and so did a lot of the instruments that, you, that had been originally built for its purpose. And uh, so we thought using the, that spacecraft with its instruments would be the best thing to do. And um, when it came to deciding the science, the, the people I'd been discussing this mission with said, well, Peter, if you're the principal investigator, that's your problem. So I'll tell you, I had a wonderful challenge for a few weeks to try and figure out what science to do on Mars, given the spacecraft and the instruments. Mm -hmm. And at just that time, Ice was discovered uh, in the northern plains in the form of permafrost, ice near the surface but not on the surface. And it just seemed like an amazing new discovery that nobody knew anything about. Let's go there and find out what it's about and see if it's a place where life could exist, perhaps. Phoenix is a stationary lander. It's not a rover. Uh, why did the Phoenix design team decide to go for a stationary lander instead of a mobile one? And how this mission was different than the ro rover missions? Okay, well, uh, as I said, we decided to use an existing spacecraft, which was never built as a, a rover. And okay. so the science goals had to be kind of tuned uh, to the capabilities of the spacecraft. And if you look at the pictures that came back from Phoenix, it's a surface that looks the same for kilometers around. You would probably be hard-pressed to find a better place to dig than where we landed. Why would you spend a lot of effort and money to go somewhere else? <laughs> it okay. takes quite a few months to explore where you are, you know, to dig down and, and uh, test the ice. Now, as far as the rovers, they, they need to move because they're looking uh, at rocks as their source of understanding of the ancient landscape at the equator and so they had to find the rocks and then they could drill into them and analyze them so without mobility they wouldn't be able to find the right rocks to look at and so that was absolutely crucial to their mission but for us it's digging and testing uh, soil and ice samples 
Okay, uh, entry, descent and landing. These three phases are considered the most important phases of any such mission. Before Phoenix right. uh, landing, uh, only five of 13 landings were successful on Mars. Uh, would right. you share with us the stress and the mood in the control room during the 16 minutes of entry, descent and landing? Well, <laughs> people were very worried. Uh, you have to understand that the next mission to Mars is also a lander. Okay. And it's also being built at the Jet Propulsion Lab, who was really in charge of our landing. And so it was crucial for them to have a successful landing with Phoenix to build confidence for the next lander. Obviously, if Phoenix failed, you would really be very doubtful about the next one. Mm-hmm. You might even cancel it if you're a NASA administrator. So people mm-hmm. were very, very worried that, that it might fail, and we went to extreme lengths to get the bugs out. And I, I tell you, you have to remember that we are the sister spacecraft of the one that crashed in 99, the Mars Polar Lander. Mm-hmm. Sister spacecraft, and we knew that had flaws. So we had worked really hard and found 25 different reasons why that previous spacecraft could have crashed, and we'd fixed them all in our spacecraft. But the administrators and the people in the room were all thinking to themselves, well, if it was 25, why not 26? Yeah. Maybe there's another one that you didn't find. Yes. So how do you win that game? Of course there might be another one we didn't find. There's mm-hmm. always a little risk. And so we were quite concerned as it went in. So those but 16 minutes... Oh, a little yeah, bit more terrifying. detail, Peter. <laughs> What's that? A, a little bit more details of those 16 minutes. Oh, yes. Um, well, we came in at uh, 13,000 miles an hour, mm-hmm. about uh, uh, at a steep angle into the atmosphere. And so when you come screaming into the atmosphere at that high speed, it, it generates a lot of heat when you uh, start entering the atmosphere. And our spacecraft heated up to 2,600 degrees Fahrenheit, mm-hmm. and uh, we had to withstand that sort of outside temperature and protect ourselves. All the sensitive uh, parts that are inside the spacecraft had to be protected. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when we got down to 1,000 miles an hour, we could release a parachute. Now, in the control room, we were monitoring everything that was happening, but 15 minutes later. So... What had ever happened was, you know, was done. <laughs> there was yes, nothing yeah. we could do to control it <laughs> because the uh, because Mars was 200 million miles away at that time, mm-hmm. and and so uh, even though we're 15 minutes behind, this, you know, we feel like we're right there when it's happening. Yeah, and, and uh, the, the, yes, and you had only one shot. Yeah, we have only one chance. That's mm-hmm. right, and it's all pre-programmed, and mm-hmm. everything has to happen uh, within. Uh, sort of the the environmental conditions that we tested it to, and if there was something different that we didn't know about, that could cause the mission to fail. Mm. Anyway, when we slowed down to 100 miles an hour, see, Mars is difficult because it's more difficult than the moon, it's more difficult than the Earth for landing because the atmosphere is thin, and, and parachutes aren't enough to slow you down. You have to have another system, and for us it was thrusters. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that was the scary part. With Once we released the parachute and dropped toward the planet, we're going 100 miles an hour, and we have to slow down to 5 miles an hour. And those thrusters and the radar and the control system have to go through a whole series of moves and, and twists and turns to make sure we do that properly. And that was the scariest part for everybody. 
that's actually my next question that instead of using airbags phoenix used a powered landing mechanism uh, similar to viking landings uh, airbags were successfully used in recent mars uh, landings was it any particular reasons for using powered la- landing mechanism well it's it's mostly historic here the um spacecraft that we were using, as I said, was the sister spacecraft to Polar Lander, okay. and they were built at the same time back in the 90s, mm-hmm. and they, they had been designed and were under construction before Pathfinder successfully landed, okay. so nobody knew that airbags was a good way to go, mm-hmm. and the second thing is that we had a heavier lander than either um, Pathfinder or the rovers, and the airbags would have had to have been considerably bigger. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you're adding an awful lot of mass to add these airbags in, and it's counterproductive. You have to ha- add so much mass, you have to take your science instruments off. <laughs> mm. So there's a trade-off, and uh, we thought that uh, really the proper way to do this was with thrusters. Mm. Uh, Phoenix landed near the northern polar region on Mars. Uh, one of the major objectives of Phoenix mission was whether this region of Mars could have supported and could still support life. Uh, tell us about the techniques and the instruments used and tell us about the findings in terms of finding life signs on Mars. Okay, so the, the first thing we're really wanting to do was find ice. Okay. Because uh, we'd been told by the orbiter, which had very poor resolution, by the way, about the size of the state of Arizona or maybe, you know, two or three Englands. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- we were told that uh, um, in that region there would be ice, but we couldn't be certain it would be right under our lander. So finding ice was the number one thing. And then to see if it had ever melted was the second thing, because it's liquid water that creates a, a habitable environment. Mm-hmm. And so ice doesn't come with a label on it that gives you its history. You have to find some marker that tells you. And the marker we used is the soil chemistry. Okay. And we were lucky enough, after finding ice, to find that the soil had 5% calcium carbonate or limestone mm-hmm. or chalk or, you know, well, anyway, calcium carbonate. And uh, calcium carbonate is formed through the action of liquid water dissolving carbon dioxide from the Martian atmosphere and making a weak acid which leaches calcium out of the rocks. That's how it forms. So it must have been liquid water at this site, and that was really an important uh, beginning to trying to assess if this is a habitable place. We weren't able to tell if there was anything inhabiting it because we didn't have life detection instruments. We couldn't measure DNA. We couldn't measure proteins. All of those things were... Uh, instruments that we're not ready to use until we know that this is the right place to do it. Otherwise, our instruments could return no data at all. So we were taking the first step. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than the question of life, what were main objectives of the mission? We wanted to know the modern environment of, of Mars and the polar region. And, and the idea here is by landing in one place, we're getting a really good idea of the entire polar environment. Uh-huh. Even though it's only one spot, uh, we have measured the polar uh, region from space for many years now, and we know it's, it's very similar all the way around and represents 20 or 25% of Mars. So to land in that region in one place is to study a huge, vast region on Mars, you know, <laughs> up close and personal. And so 
our microscope, which took the highest resolution pictures, uh, now we can tell you exactly the sizes of the soil particles, and mm-hmm. some comes from wind, and some uh, is too heavy to be borne by wind and must have come from other, other uh, uh, sources, perhaps impact craters, and uh, there's different types of soil. We, we've got all kinds of new information, but very important was the chemistry, and we found okay. a chemical called perchlorate. Mm-hmm. Perchlorate is a very interesting chemical. It's a, a chlorine with four oxygens. It's a, it dissolves easily in water, and finding perchlorate was uh, a big surprise. And, and if you look it up on Wikipedia or on the net, you'll find out that microbes love perchlorate, okay. and it's the food source for them. Okay. And so that was a great, a great opportunity. You know, we now had evidence for liquid water, and we had evidence that if microbes were to uh, be positioned in this place when the temperature was warm enough, mm. they could have liquid water and an energy source. Th- th- that's, that's actually my next question, that when we send missions to other worlds, sometimes we find stuff that we were not looking for. Sometimes we observe the anomalies that we were not expecting. Were there any such observations ma- made during uh, this mission? Any, any good surprises? Yeah, we, we came there expecting to see what the rovers saw. Remember, Mars is, uh, the surface of Mars is well mixed, if you like. Mm-hmm. There's um, global dust storms, and we've seen many global dust storms over the years, and they've been monitored quite a number of times. It's probably been 10 since we've been sending space missions. And so this means that the soils are being picked up off the surface and distributed around the planet. So we expect to see the same things uh, on the very surface layers all around the planet. And so when the uh, rover mission concluded that they were seeing very acidic environments with lots of sulfates and, and salts and mm-hmm. uh, an ancient environment that was uh, probably not very friendly to life, you know. I mean, not that life is impossible there, but, but it's certainly not the kind of place you would expect it to uh, originate. And so we went with our instruments looking for acidic sulfate rich soils and what we found was alkaline soils with the same ph as ocean water on the earth and we found calcium carbonate and we found perchlorate and so all these things are totally different than what we expected very unusual and and finally the biggest surprise of all was as we got later in our mission it started snowing. Yes, and that is. <laughs> yes. Snow coming out of the clouds, and we could see frost on the ground, and it was kind of a very Earth-like place. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, during the primary mission, uh, the Phoenix science team actually lived and worked on Mars time. Describe that experience. Well, that's, that's a very difficult thing. The human body is not geared for Mars time. I can guarantee you that. Mm-hmm. Mars time... A day on Mars is 24 hours and 37 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so that 37 minutes is close enough that it's almost like Earth time, but it's enough different that your body never quite adapts and you're always in permanent jet lag. And so as we set our schedules 37 minutes uh, later every day, it was true we got more sleep at night, but we never quite felt like we were on the Earth anymore. You started to feel Martian after a while. And in fact, it was strange for so many people that we had a group from, um, I think it was Harvard, that came down and studied us while we were studying Mars. <laughs> That's interesting. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I would like to uh, look at the emotional dimension as well. Uh, there is a machine built by the Phoenix design team. The machine is now millions of miles away in an alien world executing your commands. You must have felt that the machine was a team member. Describe the emotional attachments here. Well, that's true. That's true. Because as you go uh, through years of preparation and you write what are very arcane commands uh, <laughs> written in a language that nobody else would understand, so you're really speaking the language of the machine and you talk back and forth with it and you, you get a, a very kind of... Uh, family connection to this machine mm -hmm. and we had another one that was built just like it that was in our, our our operations center and we could do our operations on that first so we could actually watch what was happening in yes. a real sense right there in our laboratory a copy with you up to mars and we'd do it remotely hmm. so you had a copy of that with you and you could experiment on that if you were issuing any commands that's correct. Mm -hmm. uh, the actual mission was for three months, but Phoenix Lander surpassed its original three-month mission and lasted for five months. In this time, it took 25,000 images, analyzed icy soil samples. It also recorded snow falling from overhead clouds. Uh, what was the most exciting observation for the science team? Well, I think it happened early in the mission. We, we landed, and our first pictures, we could see the kind of uh, sandy, maybe a little bit lumpy landscape uh, going out around us. It's what's called patterned ground. It's just little uh, hillocks, if you like, going out as far as you could see. And we could see no ice at all. But uh, one of our first activities was to make sure that our lander was stable on the surface. And so we took our camera on the robotic arm and looked underneath the lander and the biggest surprise was that the thrusters as we landed had cleared the surface soil away and exposed the ice table for all to see <laughs> and it was so unexpected that we called that picture holy cow as we looked at it <laughs> that was the reaction we all had is who would have ever expected that and it was a wonderful thing to know right in the first uh, I think it's the sixth day of the mission that we certainly have no trouble finding ice at this landing site. Mm -hmm. uh, do you consider this mission a major success? Do you think that the instruments uh, performed well? Yeah, it is a major success, and I think we're still trying to understand the implications. In fact, we're writing uh, somewhere around 25 or 30 papers right now based on all the data that's come back. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think once the community has a chance to these papers and try digest what we're saying that I think people will conclude this is a major success. Is the data uh, sent by Phoenix uh, still being analyzed and still we may make interesting observations by further analyzing this data? Yes, it's still being analyzed. Our, our chemistry experiment was very complex and we had a, another oven experience, experiment that was also quite complex. and. We're trying to reproduce the signals exactly the way we saw them on Mars inside our Earth laboratories so that we can feel comfortable in our interpretations. Mm -hmm. And some of the signals have not been interpreted yet, so I think there's, there's more to come here. Okay. When we send such missions to other planets, is there any danger of sending micro life forms from Earth to other planets? Well, there certainly is, and uh, we have a, a very strict policies about 
planetary protection. And uh, we are very careful in reducing the number of, of microbes on the spacecraft and those parts of the spacecraft that touch the surface, particularly the ice, that would be the robotic arm, have been absolutely sterilized and protected all the way to Mars. So we have gone to extreme lengths to make sure that we do not contaminate Mars with Earth microbes. Okay, let us try to look into the future now. Uh, are we almost there? Are we ready to send first human mission to Mars? Well, I think we have the technology and many people have the desire uh, as you might guess, it's quite expensive, mm-hmm. and we haven't got our, our uh, launch vehicles back that we used to have in the Apollo era. We had the Saturn V back then, and now we're rebuilding something called Ares that will be able to carry humans uh, out of Earth orbit. And uh, until we build those spacecraft and, and test them, and I think the first test donate, um, uh, destinations will be the moon, and once we get comfortable with those and feel like we can protect astronauts, um, then I'm sure our next goal will be Mars. And I can't predict when, maybe 2030, 2050, somewhere in there. And uh, do you think that these missions will be just fact-finding trips or the beginning of permanent settlements? Well, I think the first one is going to be uh, a voyage of exploration and proof of concept that you can really do it and you can... Uh, and there will be a lot of lessons that we learned in the first mission, and so you want to really understand what you did wrong and correct all those problems before you undertake, uh, say, colonization. And for colonization, you're you're really going to have to find a, a a good water source, and perhaps you'll be digging a well down to um, an underground aquifer, or uh, who knows just how they'll do it, but. You really have to have a water source. Without water, you can't survive for very long. Uh, I would like to touch upon your recent comments. Uh, please correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. Uh, you say uh, in your recent comments that, in your opinion, in ten years' time, we will find life out there. So uh, I have two questions. First of all, do you strongly believe that there is life out there? Uh, secondly, why within ten years are we very close? Uh, do we have some clues? I think we do. I think, mm-hmm. I think uh, you know, it's hard to predict the future, and the 10 years may certainly be wrong, but the point is, very soon, I think we're going to be uh, making these discoveries. And the reason I say that is, a number of years ago, uh, in the 80s, I was heavily involved in looking for planets around other stars, and none had been found, although most people thought they were there. Mm-hmm. And then, all of a sudden, one was discovered in the early 90s, and now there's 300 of them known. Yes. So you could kind of see that a breakthrough was coming. And I feel the same way now about uh, life signatures and the possibilities of life. We now have 300 planets we know about and other stars, and we have a, a new spacecraft out called Kepler that's looking at them very closely and trying to interpret them mm-hmm. and learn more about them. And then we have other big telescopes and the technologies developing for looking at biosignatures in their atmospheres. And on Mars, we're seeing something very interesting. We're seeing that methane is uh, coming out of um, apparently, oh, I don't know, some sort of fractures in the ground. Okay. Why is methane coming into the atmosphere out of the surface of Mars? Mm-hmm. And to tell if that's a biosignature, the next step is to look at the isotopic ratios of carbon, 12 to 13. Mm-hmm. And biosignatures have a very unique uh, 
C12 to C13 ratio. Mm-hmm. And so I think that'll happen in the next 10 years. So I think we're really close in a lot of directions. The Mars Science Lab, the, the next missions to Mars are all focused on uh, life signatures. It seems to me we're getting awfully close, and I just think people should be prepared that this could happen soon. Yeah, that's actually my next question, that if we find a life out there uh, anywhere in the universe, do you think it will immediately be made public, or do you think its social implications would be evaluated first and then it may be made public? I don't think so. This this uh, methane discovery is published in Science Magazine and mm-hmm. has all kinds of implications for life. I don't, don't notice anybody hiding it. Um, if we had found any signatures related to life with Phoenix, they would have been immediately available. Mm-hmm. And I think the same will be true of the Mars Science Laboratory. These are public missions paid by uh, taxpayer money, and and it's our obligation to make sure that everybody is up to speed on what we're doing. And my experience is we don't hide things in NASA uh, in any of the missions up and on. Mm-hmm. We're not very good at hiding things. But we're pretty good at explaining them, so... It's best just to tell everybody right away. You were involved in this mission uh, to Titan also? Yes. Titan seems very interesting place. Oh, it's a fabulously interesting place. It's it's a small moon. It's, it's smaller than our moon, and yet, well, maybe it's a little larger, but it's uh, um, got a thick atmosphere, five times the density of the Earth's atmosphere, mm-hmm. very thick, and it's a nitrogen atmosphere with uh, a small amount of methane. And it's that methane that makes it a really interesting place because it creates clouds. There's actually methane rain. There's methane lakes. <laughs> mm. It's starting to look like a real kind of place, you know. The only problem is if you're looking for life signatures, it's devilishly cold. Okay. Uh, it's like the temperature of liquid nitrogen. So, you know, you just have to be very, very careful and Mm-hmm. you know, thinking that it's a place for life, but it's sure an exciting place to study. We found rivers there and, and lakes and mountains and all kinds of interesting things, even uh, apparently uh, cryovolcanoes that are spewing out very cold mm-hmm. cold uh, vapors and lavas. Exciting times ahead in space exploration. Peter Smith, Principal Investigator of NASA's Phoenix Mars Mission. Thank you very much for being with us. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a fun time. Thanks and goodbye.